0: welcome to this episode of At Work, a fortnightly podcast on all things inequality, injustice and oppression in the workplace. Now I have been away for some time and so welcome back everyone and also I suppose welcome back to me. It's great to be back and I'm back having worked, having focused on a number of projects and in particular working really hard on my PhD and on all matters of scholarly and academic concern and so I've reached a milestone. It's an important one. I have submitted all the documentation related to my PhD upgrade. It was one of the important things that I needed to do this year and so I'm really glad that I have done it. It's been quite stressful. But nonetheless, because it is such an important milestone for me, for rest reflection also, I might say, I thought that I'd give you a little bit of the lowdown about what I'm working on, some of the challenge what i i learned where I stand in relation to the research, maybe some of the implications for race reflections. I haven't scripted this, so it's going to be really what comes to my mind when it comes to the PhD process. And so bear with me. Hopefully, there'll be something of value to you if you're interested in race equality, particularly if you're interested in mental health, if you're interested in whiteness, and perhaps if, like me, you are doing a PhD or you're doing research or you're interested in engaging in those undertakings. So I think about 12-13 months ago, I did you an episode to let you know that I was embarking on his academic journey to let you have a little bit of the background in terms of why I was doing what I was doing and in terms of where I came from and what I was hoping to achieve with the PhD, that was at the very start of the process and we are now about a third in. As a result, of course, things have moved. And so I'm going to provide you an update, or perhaps as Beyonce may say, an upgrade. So let me upgrade you, We might say. So first of all, what it is that I am doing? Well, I am still looking at whiteness. And very specifically, what I want to understand is how whiteness, as we might say a factor or a force for trauma, becomes reproduced, reenacted, reiterated within the clinical encounter. So I'm really interested in what happens by way of process when a black client person, a subject, present for support and issues of race or racialized dynamics, we might say, come to be within the kind of intersubjective space that they share with their analyst slash psychologist slash psychotherapist slash counselor. Essentially, anyone who is positioned as a helper within the psychotherapeutic space, let's say very loosely. So I'm interested in that. And although the research really kind of zooms in on the clinical encounter and by extension on the mental health field, we might say there are a lot of implication for how whiteness comes to be within institutions, within organizations, within teams, relationally, procedurally, and institutionally. So I guess this is where the overlap between the work of race reflections, of course, race reflection also works at the interface between mental health, um, social justice, psychological distress, but also we work much more broadly than that. Nonetheless, this piece of work, this piece of research, is really going to help push our thinking when it comes to whiteness as violence. So let me tell you just a little bit more about the methodology so that you might be able to frame the content perhaps a bit better. So I am developing, and I say developing a group analytic frame to answer these kind of interrogations. Um, and so group analysis, very briefly, I mean, I talk about group analysis very, very frequently on At Work, but very briefly, in case that's the first time that you hear At Work or, and you're not familiar with group analysis, group analysis, we might say the therapeutic field, but it is also, I guess, a scholarly domain, a kind of theoretical ways to think about people in relationship and in context and it sits, we might say, at the intersection in the main of psychoanalysis and sociological thought. Just really interested in processes, in group processes, in group dynamics and how that inform our subjectivity or how we come to think about ourselves, how we come to be in the world, but also how it influences how we relate to to others and these others might be other people in the more proximal sense, so our colleagues, our family, our friends—you know—groups that we inhabit or that we are a member of, but also those others might be more macro contexts such as nations, societies, intergroup relations, this kind of stuff. So, if you're interested in group analysis, you go into Rest Reflections and you select or you click on the page for the study "Whiteness in tech Therapy." There's a few resources there that you might be able to access. If you are really new to group analysis and you are curious, and I would really encourage everyone to be curious about group analysis because it is a really helpful discipline when it comes to thinking about the reproduction of injustice and inequality. That doesn't mean that it is necessarily mainstream thinking within the discipline, but the, uh, the tools certainly theoretically are quite helpful. And that's, of course, why I am in there. And so I'm developing this mythological frame to kind of think what happened at personal level, at interpersonal level, at structural level. That means that whiteness or even coloniality is left free to thrive. And I chose group um, analysis as a methodological or as an analytical frame for the reason that I've just given you, but also because of its overlap with African-centric philosophical assumption concerning epistemology, cosmology and ontology. So ways of thinking about, you know, the universe, the space, how we might locate ourselves within matters, to do with truth, knowing and how we might come to think about thinking about knowing what we know and matters to do with. What could life look like? How we might come to be and to live in the world. And so there is a lot of overlap, as I said, within group analysis and within kind of African philosophies. And that's the reason why also I'm attracted to group analysis. And that's the reason why I sought to make those connections to look at those parallel between group analysis and African belief systems and worldview. So that is by way of methodology, very broadly. So I'm using groups and as part of the methodology, I'll be conducting some interview in addition to those groups. So it's going to be a pluralistic, we might say, approach to to data collection and therefore to the form of evidence that I am hoping to collect. But essentially, it is all geared toward understanding either people's lived experience when they have attempted to bring into the clinical space matters to do with race, or when they have witnessed experience, been exposed to racialized uh, concern dynamic happening in their therapeutic space, but also asking people who might not necessarily have that experience because because they might not be racialized as black. I focus on black people or as brown or indeed they might simply be people who are interested, members of the communities or perhaps practitioners who are interested. Just come together in those group and let's just think and reflect on what's going on and what we can do about the going-ons. <music> Let me tell you a little bit more about the structure. The chapter that I submitted for my date looks at whiteness, at time and space, at memory. And in it, I'm really trying to interrogate and to challenge Western thinking when it comes to time. Uh, and so what I'm positing in the chapter is that to understand racialized phenomena and memory concerning the same, then we need to rethink Western linear temporalities. And so therefore, to rethink, I guess we might say the modernist ways that we have come to think about time, about knowing, about remembering. Because what do we know what we know and how that influence how we are in the world, Opposite in this particular chapter, is transmitted in ways that defies all the kind of boundaries that we kind of take for granted when it comes to thinking about knowing, if that makes any sense. I'm hoping to think about what trauma in the clinic looks like from the, I guess, point of epistemic and ontological perspective. So what I want to look at is the ontological and epistemic assumption that underscore clinical work. So that is a little bit kind of more technical, perhaps a bit more jargony, perhaps a bit more scholarly. But what I am trying to say here is that when we do what we do in the clinic, what we do is also bringing into the room particular assumption, particular ways of thinking about the world, particular philosophies. And those philosophies may at times be at odd with, you know, the philosophies, with the worldview, with the lived experience of people who are racialized as Black. And if so, I want to really unpack pick that in which ways, because that would lead us to matters of violence. And so in this chapter, I want to really look at symbolic violence and I want to look at epistemic violence, kind of from sociological and philosophical perspective, using in particular, you know, Fanon, Bourdieu, Spivak and other kind of post-colonial thinkers. I'd say that really what I'm interested in is understanding the mechanics by which whiteness comes to be in the clinic, what that looks like, what we can do about it, and how might we then decolonize if we believe in decolonization. That's number one. That's not something we must take for granted. And, and number two, what that then looks like for people in the clinic, whether the clinician themselves, but also the patients or the clients here in a particular case, people who are racialized as Black. So that is my thesis, what I'm I'm setting out to do. Some of you might think that, oh, that is an extension of the research that you've done in psychology, and that is absolutely right. And some of you might also rightly see that it is an extension of Living While Black, which focused on my own clinical experience of supporting people experiencing racial trauma. Now, with that thesis, what I want to ask is... Very specifically, what happened in the clinic that creates trauma, right? How is racial trauma, racialized distress, we might say, in operation or brought into being in the clinic and what might we do and what are the implications for healing? And so therefore, what are the implications for mental health discipline? And by further extension, we might even say, what are the implications for supporting people who are racialized as black within organizations at large. Now, that's a little bit ambitious, but I'm sure that there will be some implication. If you're interested, please get in touch. There's a study page again on Rest Reflection where you can get further details. And in fact, I'm still recruiting participants. I'm not dying for participant, but there is some room. So if you're really interested, if would like to take part, please get in touch. Now, I'm going to end this episode on some of the challenge that I have experienced in terms of getting to that stage. As I said, getting to this great point is a significant milestone. And it's, of course, very anxiety provoking because it is an examination. There's to worry about that. Not as formal as the final thesis, but nonetheless, it is an assessment. And so most students will find it anxiety provoking. It doesn't matter how confident you are in your work. And it doesn't matter what kind of feedback that you've obtained from your supervisor. It's an examination. Every examination is going to raise some anxiety. So of course, it has been stressful just by virtue of this reason alone. But also, I think I've submitted something like 30,000 words that include references for the upgrade. And so altogether, I've written, I think, in this first year, something like 40 or 50,000 words. And now looking back, I think this is absolutely wild. Okay, maybe not 50,000 words, but at least 40, 45,000 words. And I think that's really wild. But I guess what I'm saying that is to give you a sense of the amount of work that is required when one does a PhD full-time. It's a lot of work. And so by extension, it means that it's very challenging if you're doing something else. I mean, it is usually discouraged to work full time and to do a PhD as I'm doing it full time. It is really discouraged. In fact, most people struggle to do that. I've been doing rest reflection more or less full time. I've been doing the PhD full time. And so it means that I've been working 60, 70, 75 hours a week on some weeks, sometimes more, sometimes a bit less, depending on the priorities that need to be juggled. And that's really, really demanding. And the only reason why I've been able to do that, and I think I've said that in the first episode when I talked about the research, is because of the overlap between my writing. For Risk Reflections, the work that I do for Risk Reflections, the PhD, and prior research experience. So I know the area, even though I've been introduced to new thinking, new authors, new scholars, new areas for sure, and that's been great. But there's still something that I've brought to the PhD, which was I would say, a fairly solid understanding of what I wanted to do, why I wanted to do it, and a fairly good understanding, I would say, of the area when it comes to whiteness, when it comes to uh, racial trauma, when it comes to mental health. And that really has helped. I don't think that I would have been able to reach the point that I've reached in the time that I have without that I I really don't think that I would have done that and so the implication is that if you want to do what I'm doing which is doing a PhD and doing other stuff you really want to pick an area that you are familiar with if you want to start something afresh I mean don't just don't just don't I mean it is barely barely manageable even though I know fairly well you know what I'm doing most of the time most of the time and there are moments I'm completely clueless of course like everyone if you want to do what I'm doing starting afresh it's not going to happen I mean I don't know some people I might be geniuses but you know for the average person it will not happen the second thing is I think I've said that before is the amount of reading I think I got better at kind of skim reading and kind of extracting it's not a term that I'm particularly fond of as a black woman of Congolese descent but there's something about, you know, reading to make your case. And there's not to way about that. You might not like it. And everybody would like to kind of sit and read books from page to page, line to line, and then decide on what's relevant. Yeah, let me just be honest, that is not realistic. You have to be really focused, I guess, because of what I'm doing and what I'm doing. And so one thing that has been Particularly helpful following on this point is I was asked to produce a thesis outline, even though that's not really required for an empirical project where I am registered at Burbank. And I was a bit resistant to do that because I thought I'd lock myself into needing to do or to take a particular direction or to do particular lines of inquiry. So I was kind of resistant to do that. But I would tell you, that's probably one of the most helpful things that I've been asked to do because it has really framed my thinking. It's made be more focused about where I'm going to go. And so therefore it's also helped with delineating what reading I can include, exclude, and I guess made me really focus on where I'm going with that. And so that's been invaluable. So thank you to my supervisors for recommending that. Even though I was a little bit stroppy, I'm not going to lie, that I needed to do that. It was maybe half of the world spent. I think probably the most well spent time that I spend in the entire thesis. So I don't know whether other people doing PhD have found that helpful or whether your kind of program allows you to do, whether even the structure of your your thesis allows you to kind of think in advance what you want to write about. A bit like when you do a book and maybe there is that familiarity because I'm writing my third book. And so books are not that intimidating to me. Certainly writing a thesis is more intimidating to me than writing a book. And a lot of people are going to find that completely, completely wild and unbelievable. But it is the truth. And it is the truth simply because it's a process that is familiar. I've written book. I've written chapter. I've made a case for particular chapters. I've dealt with editors. I know how to defend what I've chosen to include and not to include. And so this process established into that experience and that has maybe alleviated some of this anxiety. And last challenge I'm going to talk about a little bit, even though it is mitigated by my presence on social media, is that it is fairly isolating. I mean, I'm part of a cohort. We are generally, I would say, pretty close, pretty collegial, pretty friendly. But even though I think most people study their own thing, and so I think that there's a limit to which you can be really connected to other people and kind of be engaged or engage them in your work because people are busy doing their own thing, thinking their own thinking, reading their own reading and doing the stuff that they need to do to progress their own research. And so, yes, people get together and then we can talk. And sometimes there's a little bit of overlap. But in terms of specialism, they are really, I would say, miles apart. And that does create a little bit of a sense of silo, of a sense of being in a bubble, if you like, even when you are in a group, because your thinking might be widely apart from the thinking of other people. So I would say that it's great in some sense because I've learned so much from my peers and from their learning. And in fact, I've picked up some ideas and I've picked up some theorists from the conversation and from the kind of seminar where we exchange. So that's been helpful. But when it comes to having someone that study what you study, that research what you research, that is familiar with your ideas, that is familiar with the thinking of where you want to go and you can kind of bounce off ideas at that level of scholarly proximity, you don't get that. Well, I haven't got that. And so, yeah, I miss that. You get a little bit of that to some degree in supervision, but not much. And now I understand why they say that you become the expert in the area that you're researching. And because you are the expert in the area that you are researching, it can be very difficult to find other people to share with, Of course, I can have lots of conversation about various topics, but I would just love some time to have someone that is also studying whiteness and trauma in psychotherapy, in psychology and mental health, and we could just sit down. Yeah, that doesn't happen. That is something that I grieve sometimes for where, you know, you have to make your own decision, my friend, and you are accountable for the decision that you make when it comes to inclusion, exclusion, when it comes to your particular interpretation of the data and, your you know, methodological considerations. So you have support, you have your supervisors that are going to guide you. But when it comes to the nitty gritty, when it comes really to the content of your ideas and where you get where you get because of the reading that you get. I'm afraid you are on your own. But I don't think I really understood that. That has been a challenge a learning as well. i the same time as some of you know, I set up to study racial trauma, probably because of my own experience of racism and likely my own experience of racial trauma and likely some of the experience that I've had within academia and within psychosia, where I said, you know what, I will become the leading expert in this country on racial trauma and whiteness in the clinic. I haven't been shy about saying that. That has been part of my resistance and my defiance. It's great to see that I'm heading that way. And, you know, I'm really, really proud of the work that I've presented so far. I like what I've written. I hope it's going to be like that. give you an update on how the upgrade goes. and so that was it my good people a little bit of musing on the phd to upgrade to process the content the relevance why i've done what i am doing some of the methodological considerations i hope i haven't been too jargony. i mean this is doctoral research on whiteness so i really apologize if it makes zero sense i hope it makes some sense and i hope that you can see the relevance for whiteness within organizations at large So thank you very much for listening. And until next time, please take care. Subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to send us queries, questions, and dilemmas to be reflected on, please email at work at racereflections.co.uk.